out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the Liverpool bass band Cecil, who I spoke to their main man very recently. Yes, the one and only Sant Williams, vocalist and songwriter. So, after several minutes of casual chat, because we'd never met each other before, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early musical influences. And after confessing mine, it was up to him to to discuss and uh, talk about his early, yes, those musical moments that changed his life. Anyway, over to you. Basically, Mm. Buddy Holly, um, Carl Perkins, all that kind of, um, Chuck Berry. Uh, That that was the kind of first, yeah, that was the kind of stuff I got into. Was that because your parents were listening to it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. My mum used to listen to a lot of that kind of stuff, yeah. Right. Blimey. So when did you you sort of suddenly branch out? Because my parents were into terrible music, actually. They still are, but they were into really bad country, Western, like Boxcar Willie and all those kind of really twangy country. Though my dad did, you know, has, he does like Elvis, but obviously that's kind of, at the time I didn't think much of Elvis. But what? But um, when did you sort of see something that you liked and your parents said, Jesus, I hate that? <laughs> it was a bit of a mad thing actually, because I lived with my sister from when I was about um, 14, 14 years old. So it was, my sister probably had an influence on me music and my older brother, I was living with them too. Uh, my parents split up, so my sister was listening to like kind of um, the mission, right? Jesus and Mary Chain, um, or else that kind of Jesus loves Jezebel. I don't know if you remember them. Yes, I do. Yeah, my brother was my brother was into big country, Simple Minds, U uh, two with mixed in with a bit of Hendrix and Slayer. Right. And a lot of like Iron Maiden and stuff. So yeah, it was it was uh, it was a, a coming together of a lot of different genres that kind of got me kind of confused and excited at the same time. So your awakening moment was the eighties, wasn't it? It was yes, that, yes. that was that period of goth rock. And did you like yeah. the cult, the cult, and Susan the Banshees and people like that? I did actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was his name now? What was the singer of the cult? Ian, uh, Ian, Ian Asprey. He yes. came to a settle gig once, and I couldn't believe how short he was. He was about, he was about five foot in heels. I was like, "Fucking hell!" He's, you know, this this big, this massive, humongous energy and voice he had on his records. And then you stand next to him, and he's like, "Then now he looks like some little kid." It's very bizarre. It must be because I know we've all got used to the fact that Prince and Kylie are like five foot. Which you think five foot? Yeah. You're serious? That's smaller than mine. Can't imagine Prince. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Prince, you kind of get that, but not with Ian Ashbury. You just think that he would be a, he'd be like this kind of you know North American Indian warrior, wouldn't you? At six foot four and would beat you up. Exactly. Yeah, some chief. Yeah, some sort of yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> so when did you discover your voice? When did you start thinking, actually, I've got a voice? Because I, I must admit, that's quite a brave thing to have, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if I discovered it, but I used to sing a lot when I was with my mum in the kitchen. She, you know, she'd be like doing her bits or whatever. Even when she was knitting, like she'd be playing bits of music, and I'd be singing along. She used to tape us as well. So me and my brother, who's got 
a voice just as good as mine, but never really got into music. Uh, me and him would be singing together, and I still had tapes of that. We weren't singing anything kind of interesting, you know what I mean? Just even just songs that we made up, like stupid lyrics or whatever. But um, yeah, that was probably the first time I found my voice, but didn't realise I had a voice. It just it just it was happening. Yes. You know what I mean? Because a lot of bands that I've interviewed in the in the uh, you know the indie bands of the eighties, obviously there was a bit of a narrative because in the early eighties there was a lot of unemployment. So being unemployed, job seekers' lands, enterprise lands, most people did did something like that for a couple of years, thinking, well, there's no future, no one wants us. Especially, obviously, you know, in the north as well. I mean, it wasn't probably quite so bad down in sort of East Anglia way, but you know, it was still quite a grim, and being unemployed wasn't a big thing. But a lot of people during that time got into playing music, not obviously everyone, but Liverpool obviously has this huge reputation because you had obviously Eric's and you had that whole scene with Julian Cove and, and Bill Drummond, and then you had the Wild Swans and, and yeah. you know, Lotus Eaters. I mean, there's phenomenal bands. And then recently Cherry Red Records have brought out that five CD box set of kind of Liverpool bands. And you think, Jesus Christ. Was I was listening so to that the other day, actually. Were you? <laughs> yeah, I was listening to it. I was listening to about probably three CDs of it. Until I lost the will to live, but <laughs> some of it, some of it's great, but some of it's awful as well. But I yes. can't remember the ones that yet. They kind of, you know, there's so many like other bands that sound like Julian Cope, but kind of watered down versions yes. of uh, the teardrop explodes. Yeah. So you would have just kind of missed that kind of Eric's and all that Jane Casey stuff, wouldn't you? But you've obviously yeah. and Holly Johnson. So during the sort of latter part of the 80s, when you probably started to form bands, were you starting to sort of pick up on that kind of alternative scene? Um, it was probably like early 90s right. when I started writing, writing tunes. So I was listening, you know, the, the big kind of grunge thing coming through. I wasn't like massively influenced by it, but I, I liked certain parts of it. I liked the kind of lesser known bands like uh, Screaming Trees. Yes. You know, and you know, not not really the Pearl Jam or I did like Nirvana, but like Mud Honey and the Screaming Trees and Tad and you know, bands like that more than the the well known ones. They yes. they started to kind of make me think. Um, Nine Inch Nails, not on that scene, but you know, around that time, it, late late eighties, early nineties, it got me excited and um, yeah, I started to have a go myself. Uh, my brother had an acoustic. I never bought. I wrote the first album, Bombardilla on my um, my brother's acoustic. I didn't even own an instrument. And I was playing, I couldn't play the guitar, so I was playing bass lines. I was just playing like the root, uh, the low E note, and just working out songs around around that, just key yes. notes. Because it's interesting, because a lot of the 80s bands, most bands have a five-year narrative. Um, and they, um, yeah, and so in the 80s, Let's go back to the 80s. I mean, there was two things that happened. There was like ecstasy came along and suddenly everyone, the, the 16 to 18 year old, didn't want the jingly jangly sound of the Smiths anymore and all that Julian Cope stuff. They wanted raving, didn't they? Not everyone, but a lot. And then two years yeah. later, John Peel played the Sub Pop 100 compilation that featured all those bands that we loved. And I went to see, you know, Nirvana and, and supporting Tad on that famous tour, which was in 1989 yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the Norwich Arts Centre. And then sort of, we just got very excited with that scene. So all those bands who were like, no one wants us, do they? Like, obviously the Smiths had broken up, but there's all those bands like the Primitives and the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No. They just were like, does anyone want the next album? It's like, not really. Fuck it. We'll, we'll split up now then. You know, so you, <laughs> you, you sort of were obviously right on the crest of the wave with the grunge scene, that sort of 
God, it's very excited because before that, I remember people like Sonic Youth and the Butthole Surfers and Big Black and people yeah, like that, which were like, and Huskadoo were my favorite band. Yeah. Um, so all that kind of was there. So you, when you started kind of forming the band, was it around that kind of sound that you wanted to capture? No, it was like, I think, I think we, we stumbled upon our sound and then I don't know, did we ever get our sound? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's, I've been thinking back at that. It was like, I loved at that time, yeah, they had the grunge thing coming through, but I loved the Happy Mondays and that kind of Manchester scene as well. Yes. It was brilliant. And, um, you know, the lads, some of the lads are into more kind of like metal, like Annihilator and things like that. And I was listening to the Happy Mondays and then uh, a bit of Love Neil Young and, and then like Nick Drake and Leonard Cohen, massive influence as well. And Roger Waters, Pink Floyd, even Sid Barrett, Sid Barrett Pink Floyd. And, um, it was just a, a mishmash of like one guitarist was into the kind of more kind of ministry, nine inch nails. So yeah, it was just, you know, loads of bands flying about. It was it was quite it was quite confusing, but yes. something worked because we got signed on it. So something So how did you worked. come across Nick Drake? I think I seen a documentary on him on the t- on the TV, maybe BBC Four or or right. well or did I exist then? I don't know, maybe on on one of the BBC channels anyway. About yes. the story breaking yeah and how fucked up and wonderful he was at the same time and i was just intrigued and i bought i went out and bought every single album right you know five five leaves left pink moon and the like so yeah loved Free it tree. i mean they're just classics aren't they Amazing. So, Amazing. so depressing so with yeah. with your emotional <laughs> state did you sort of veer towards that romantic melancholia uh, i think probably lyrically i did for a while and then because the lads are playing such heavy stuff i kind of went well what what pisses me off as well so I started writing about things that pissed me off so yeah went from that kind of loving the world to uh, <laughs> hating the world because <laughs> <laughs> in the okay so just to mention the 80s one more time but you know during that time we had Thatcher but you had Major didn't you you had the John Major years things were looking yeah, we good had, in Liverpool we had, we had the grey skin and a uh, bowl of peas yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what, so when when the band came together, because I remember sort of my, one of my favourite bands was Motorhead, you know, and I interviewed Fast Eddie once, and he said it took a while for them to get a sound that was going to give them something. So they were just about to break up because they thought, well, look, we're still not doing anything. We'll just we'll do one live recording and that will be it. And then someone picked up on it after a few years. How did it, did it sort of start to come together with, you know, with the band? You know, did it sort of make you think... Because uh, with a lot of bands, when they start, you know, they're just playing in front of their friends and family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them, don't they? And then one day someone goes, oh, this is quite good. And there's a stranger who was watching and think, oh, they, they like us. Yeah, I think, I think we, even though we didn't know where we were going, we were, think, we were thinking, if we're going to do it, let's do it, you know, let's do it properly. Don't, let's not, let's not like fuck about so we had we had so much belief in us like probably too much in a way that we become like this kind of really it's like a kind of gang mentality it was kind of it could have it could have like kind of um put a few people off you know come to see us because it was quite like quite intense but yeah I, I, you know we never went out there and wrote like kind of i don't think we ever tried to write like funny tunes right it was all like kind of quite serious and like right this is it you know, if you write a tune, it's got it's got to have an impact on someone's life. It's got to like, you know, we've got to be a hundred percent looking into it. And then, you know, I don't know where I'm going with that one. You know what I mean? We've you've got to be fucking unbelievably passionate or just give in now. 
Yeah, that's how we. That's how we. That's how we. Uh, um, that's what we aim for anyway. Because at that time, there were a lot of bands who were very, you know, they had great anthems and great followers. And there was like people like the Levelers and also Censor as well. Remember Censor? Yeah, yeah, we supported Censor. Which had a, they sort of mashed kind of rap and lyric together, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, so were you kind of looking at other bands at that stage thinking, actually, we're, you know, kind of being influenced by them at all? There were a few bands like that who'd done all that kind of... Um, metal, rock, rap kind of thing. Remember Bully Rock from Liverpool? They were a good band. I don't know if you remember them. No. They were brilliant. Check them out. Really good band. Oh, what was the other band now? Uh, Benji. Benji was the singer. They were like oh. kind of a crossover as well. They played really good stuff. But I was never really influenced by that. I was like, even when, the, even when we'd, we'd get off stage or whatever and go back home, I'd, ne I'd never really listened to like that much heavy music. I was listening to Carpenters, or <laughs> you know, something that you wouldn't expect me to listen to, because I'd be like smashing a pint glass in my face and then calling everyone a cunt or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> then I go to the Carpenters. <laughs> well, funny enough, the Carpenters are probably my favourite, one of my favourite bands of all time. And I always, you know, that was kind of what I was vaguely hearing when I probably was listening to it the radio with my mum in like the late 60s and early 70s, you yeah. know, there would be Radio 2 with the Carpenters. And, and I got this record Amazing. called Top of the Pops Sings the Carpenters. Top of the Pops. It was one yeah. of those K-Tail. Well, I didn't realise it wasn't the Carpenters for years. I was kind of like a bit heartbroken. But then I thought it's still... And I thought, as a 10-year-old, listen to those lyrics. It kind of slightly blew my mind. I thought, no wonder I like Joy Division and the Smiths. Christ, listen to these lyrics. <laughs> these are so depressing. She, all she's talking about is loneliness and saying goodbye to love. No wonder she's upset. Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, if anyone listens to the lyrics, I mean, it's like, wow, that's a bit raw. As soon as you hear her voice, though, you're just like, you want to cry? Don't know about you, I'm just like... Oh, God, Jesus, you know. How amazing is her voice? It's like, yeah. it's depressing, but it's like, it's like from another world. You know, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so perfect. And her drumming's amazing as well. People never even comment about her drumming. She's amazing. Yes, well, well, absolutely. I mean, I still, those, those, those lyrics are still ensconced in my brain, actually. I say goodbye to love. <laughs> oh, no one yeah. seems to care if I live or die. It's like, fucking hell, <laughs> just can't, just, you know, don't yeah. pull your socks up. But it's, you know, yeah. amazing. So when did you sort of hit the first recording studio moment? Um, we recorded, do you mean professionally or like so-called yes, professionally? Yes, kind of when you went into the studio to start recording. What, what do you mean, that the demo that got assigned or yes. afterwards? No, the first afterwards. demo. Oh, the first demo we went to a place called uh, Hard, Hard City Records. The demo cost us £80 and it went on to tape. And it was the only demo we did, I'm pretty sure it's the only demo we did, that got us uh, interest from about probably about seven major record labels. And like um, Paddy, the guitarist in the band, his dad is a, a chiropodist and he was chopping someone's... Uh, fungus off their feet or whatever and I mentioned that you know his son was in a band and this this gentleman Darren Michelson said funny enough I'm a, ma I'm, I'm a manager I'd like to hear the stuff so he heard the stuff gave us money straight away to go and tour around the country we, we bought ourselves a little transit van um, put a few like seats in the back put a mattress in the back so if anyone wanted to sleep or whatever and then we went and toured we just played every shit hole every tiny little venue and then um, before we knew it, we had loads of interest from major record labels. And the, the management 
<clears throat> just bizarre. The management uh, also managed Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Echo and the Bunny Man, um, the Sundays, Cocktail Twins, some amazing bands. Jesus Christ. Really, I know, we're lucky, we're lucky. I just, we just stumbled upon that, but he stumbled okay. upon us as well, didn't he, in a way? Well, yeah, feet first. But did you, I mean, because it's interesting, because that time and and uh, and previous decades, there were like the gatekeepers, weren't there? You had things like John Peel, the John Peel show, then you had the music papers. But the other thing that really helped was that every town and city had a, like an alternative mm. club night, didn't they? A venue of some description, mostly on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday when they can, you know, when they <laughs> yeah. just had to sort of guess, desperately get sort of 100 or 200 sort of skinny white kids in, into a place <laughs> who want to hear the next big thing. So it kind of, I didn't realise this at the time, but I realise it now. It kind of created that scene and, and for a band, feeling like you're making some sort of progress, even if it means driving through the night and um, playing in Norwich and then sort of driving back at four in the morning and unloading. It still feels better yeah. than sitting in your bedroom thinking one day we might make it. Oh, definitely. You know, you, you didn't care then, did you? You didn't care now what position your spine was in. You just, like, you just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just yes. like, fucking keeled over, like, you know, let us see. But um, for like hours on end. Uh, but yeah, it was it was enjoyable, you know, just to be with lads who you, who you loved being with and playing music that you kind of excited you. And yeah, just, just seeing, playing all these like weird and wonderful towns. And seeing people buzzing off it as well, whether it was like two or three, or whether you know you you, you hit the spot on that night and the whole crowd were booming, you know, yes. yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And did you? I mean, at that stage, because because in that period, I remember there was like obviously grunge had slightly had its moment. Then Britpop came along, and then we had those kind of shine compilations for the sort of part-time fan, which was very useful because then you could get a sort of CD with like the latest kind of guitar-based numbers on it but then at the same time you know there was a lot of kind of money in the record industry as well wasn't there there was a lot of the cocaine and champagne period so were you sort of riding that crest of the wave i think i think we we probably hit it towards the end of that that i think um we got signed and yeah there was a lot of money going around a lot of money wasted as well you know we think this this bloke should should mix your single it's just it's mixed it sounds great just get it out there just fucking put it out there no but you know we should we should have like tim palmer or dave bascom should do a mix and mark dobson should do a mix it's like well yeah okay but you don't realize at the time that if we ever made any money we'd be paying that back (laughs) (laughs) it seems there seems to be a lot of money flying about and a lot of like kind of ah fuck it just we'll get in we'll get them to to tweak it or whatever but yeah yeah, the scenes, a lot of, lot of, lot of nonsense. Right. A lot of nonsense. Did you? Which is of... which is cool because if you know if it's, if they want to fly you out to LA to to mix your albums, like when you can mix it in Liverpool, it's um, probably the same. You know, a mix is not really gonna, you know, it being in LA is not gonna really make make the mix kind of sound like that kind of sunshine LA, is it? It's already it's already recorded. Yes. So you know it's like there was just yeah, there was quite a lot of money going around and you know, A and R men A and flying over and driving you around in Ferraris through like Sunset Boulevard at night or whatever. It's just like what the hell's going on here? I'm such just a little skull from Anfield. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just surreal. 
I mean, were it. you were you in the in the fortunate position of being a full time musician and in the band? Uh, when we were signed to Parlophone, yeah, we we became full time musicians. We were signing on up until then, uh, and then yeah, we we kind of done the accountants to put us on a wage and not so we so we didn't waste the money. We were kind of clever that way. Right. We put, I think we put I think we put ourselves on, which back in the day is not not a bad wage actually. Probably get less than that now. So it was like, <laughs> like it was like two hundred and fifty quid a week or something. We put ourselves on. Yes. And can you remember? You know, when you went to record the album, was it all? Had you got all the songs sorted, and you were just needing to go in and do it, or were you still creating on the during the session? I think I think the first album Bombardier, we were we had kind of everything in place. The second album subtitles, we kind of wrote a lot of it in there. We had ideas. And we kind of pieced them together in there with like with the things we had in there, like pianos and mellotrons, and we kind of went down that route. Even though it was still a rock album, it felt like kind of concepty because, yeah, we kind of experimented quite a bit with the instruments that were that were lying around within that within the studio. Yeah, that, that was quite fun. But the first album, yeah, it was it was a bit more kind of raw and this is what we're about. And, you know, we've had these songs lying around and we've been playing them for quite a while. So it was like, bang, have that kind of thing. I, remember, I, I think I think Black Sabbath did the same thing on their first album, didn't they? They just went in and just said, look, we've been playing this for years. We can just do it in an afternoon. Don't worry about it. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's exactly. the end of that. Did you find it tricky with a follow-up album? Um, no, to be honest, no, because... I think people listened to the second album and were like, well, where's, where's this going? But we were already kind of there already, you know, we were there already, like listening to that kind of music and all that kind of um, spacey stuff and really minimal. And then we, we were never, we, we never really felt like a, a metal band anyway. When people saying we were a metal band, it was like, were we? Are we? Really? Like, I'm into the carpenters, lad. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> into fucking, uh, you know, I'm not into it. I don't know. Fucking Judas Priest, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah it, did, it, didn't, it... It, it didn't feel, it didn't feel that, that mad to, to bring out subtitles. It was like, yeah, that's, it, it feels right. It feels right to experiment in the studio and, you know, go down, go down the, the roads that, you know, the bands that we're into anyway. Yeah. Because it's interesting, because being the vocalist and you have put a lot of kind of pressure and, and uh, stress on your voice, did you start to sort of become aware of those kind of issues being, you know, the vocal cords? I asked that because I spoke to Miles from The Wonder Stuff and he, and he said that one good bit of advice he got from someone was like, next time you write an album, put some spaces in it because you're going to need to sort of save your voice a bit, otherwise <laughs> you're just going to wreck That's it. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I don't. I don't know if I went. I probably didn't do that, and by not doing that, um, completely fucked up my vocal cords. The wreck now. The wreck now. They, they, they've never recovered. It's like, it's like uh, when I'm asleep. When I'm sleeping at night, it sounds like I'm, I'm breathing through fucking shards of glass. You know what I mean? I've, I've wrecked them over the years. But um, yeah, I, I had I had some lessons to try and stop myself from um, burning myself out halfway through a tour or whatever. And they were telling tell me to sing from a diaphragm. And it was just like, I, I, I can't sing from a diaphragm. I've got to sing from my 
it sounds cheesy, but I've got to sing from my heart, or I've got to sing from me, you know, yeah, my lungs. I've got to sing from my throat. You know what I mean? I've got to sing from from my head. I can't. I can't. I'm not some kind of opera singer. So yes. yeah, I probably, I probably worked against me that I didn't really plan ahead like uh, the lad from the Wonder Stuff. Yeah. Yes. Or Meatloaf. I know Meatloaf had a horrendous lot of problems with his vocals and he, his vocal cords for one of their second album. I think they were trying to record it, and every time he went to sing, it was like, oh shit, we're not. It's gonna have to have another six months yeah, off, aren't we? Yeah. But uh, when you did, so we're doing subtitles, the the second album, and when it came out. Did the momentum of the band slightly struggle because the sort of sales hadn't gone quite to plan? Um, I don't know if we if we struggled as in getting on as friends or as a band. I think we probably struggled that with the fact that the record company drifted away from us a little bit and just kind of left us to it. I think because they had loads of successful bands at the time, so they was like, "We'll we'll just keep an eye on them, but we'll we'll give them a, we'll give them a few quid." keep an eye on them and then you know hopefully they'll, they'll come up with something that will be successful and unfortunately we didn't you know we just got left in the we just got left in a rehearsal room in, in a in a basement in liverpool town center with no kind of phone calls from anyone right. playing a, yeah we just ended up playing nintendo 64 constantly and <laughs> getting stoned <laughs> <laughs> did you feel that there had been a slight shift like i was saying in the 80s there'd been that shift with you know you know especially ecstasy coming along and suddenly everyone was a bit more like oh right happy monday soup dragons stone roses you know primal scream suddenly that kind of a lot of bands were like oh god things have changed and and you know obviously you went from the the john major years to the great new labor period did you did you also feel because you'd been together for quite a few years that it was like, oh Christ, we're you know, how do we keep this momentum going? How did you two keep doing it? Or oh, the Rolling Stones? Did that feel a little bit like the game had changed a bit? Um, possibly, yeah, but I've, we've never never really compared ourselves to the Rolling Stones or you two. <laughs> we were just like, I don't know, we did, we always felt like some little small kind of underground band from Liverpool. And then, even when we were signed to a major record label, we we never felt big so maybe that was our downfall that we never really um i wouldn't say believed in ourselves we always believed in ourselves but maybe we should have believed in that then maybe we should have been assholes <laughs> we should have just <laughs> been out there and like yeah i am bono you know paddy changed his name to i don't know some kind of mad name like the edge or whatever you know and just the thought curve. we were some bigger than we actually were yeah the curve, yeah the, well, I just yeah, wondered, as, as a musician and, and a singer and a songwriter, did you ever sort of feel comfortable thinking, I am an artist? Did you sort of, or do you think, oh, no, that sounds a bit creepy, that's a bit wanky? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I tried to a few times in, in, when I was having a bevy with me with my family in Anfield or whatever and just got put down straight away. <laughs> <laughs> shut, up, shut up, dickhead. I guess that's why people like, I think with Bono and Sting, there was that, and, and even people like David Bowie, they had that kind of great belief that they were going to do it. And I just wondered if that counts for like 90% of just persevering, thinking, right, this is it. I can, I'm going to move. It, it does, does have it, it's, you know, what is it like 70, 80% of the fight is all about bravado, isn't it? And that how, how you come across the person that you're going to fight. So probably works the same way in, in, in music as well, doesn't it? Yes, I would have thought so, just being able to sort of face that moment. But then then after your second album, you relocate to America, don't you? 
No, people say we relocated. We didn't. We, we spent a bit of time out there. We didn't like. We didn't live out there for any long period of time. But we um, after the after this. Do you mean after the second album? Yeah. After the yeah, second after the album. Second, we felt we spent a bit of time in Seattle with a, um, a gentleman Barrett Jones who who produced the majority of subtitles. He's he's known for he done the he done the Foo Fighters. Yeah. He worked with the Foo Fighters in Nevada and a few other big bands. Uh, we went out and met him in Seattle and worked out, worked on a lot of tunes out there. And um, a lot of them, no disrespect to Barrett, it was, it was us, to be honest. We, we, we went out there with the wrong tunes and we just didn't... Some of them are good, you know what I mean? But some of them are absolute shite. It's like we had, we, we had so much better, you know, recorded on, on a little 12-track in, in our rehearsal studio. And we didn't take them out there, which is just bad, bad, bad choice of songs, really. Yes. But yeah, yeah, we spent a bit of time out in, in, in America, yeah. So what was, why did you sort of not think, why did you take the songs you, you did take? And did you just not sort of sit down and have a, uh, think it through? I haven't, I, do you know what? I haven't got a clue why we didn't take the correct, or go out there with a list of the ones that we wanted to do, you know, the, the priority songs. We just went, we went out there and we went, oh, we'll try that idea. Oh, we'll try that one as well. And then it, it was just not great, not great. And then listening back to the dats, that I still have an old dat play in the house, and listening back to the dats of, there's probably about 20, at least 20 to 30 songs on there that we didn't take out with us are much better. It's just bizarre. I don't don't know what was going through our brains. Smoking too much weed, fucking taking too much ta- too many tablets. I don't know. Yes, it's hard it's to keep it behave. going. So then, so when you were in America and and things weren't going well, did you also decide then to come back and to keep it going, or was thing what did did was there a sort of unspoken feeling that the band were slowly coming to an end? I think it was. We came back and the record company were like, well. We had a different manager by that time, and she was like, "I don't think the record company are loving her anymore. I think that you know they're gonna say something soon." And it was like a little bit of a warning. And then I can't remember how, what kind of time length it was, but you know, shortly after that, it was the record company a drop, and yeah, it was like, okay, then fair enough. You know, like it's like how many, you know, thousands, millions of bands have been dropped, haven't they? It's it's, it's just got to deal with it and other bands go on and get signed again but I think we were just like so down about it we were like do you know what I think we'll split up for a while and just take some time out because since we were 17 we've been doing this yes you know and we were just like yeah we'll just take some time out which in hindsight was probably <laughs> a bad decision not good decision makers are we really it was a bad, it was a bad decision and um, yeah and then too much time went by, and then here I am now. Yes, but then did you st- did you yeah? But you didn't completely walk away with from music, though, did you? No, no. I've, I've always I've always written songs, and um, yeah, I've been in other bits and bobs, and not not as successful as Cecil. I'm I'm still doing stuff now with with a band. There's some stuff on Spotify and that three three piece where I play bass and sing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I'm still I'm still always writing, and I've got something coming out. Towards the end of this year, uh, my solo stuff, which will be out on vinyl. And yeah, I'm, I'm keeping busy. Because keeping I remember speaking 
to one of the members of the Mega City Four, and he said that when the band finished, because he that was all he knew, he just was in a like a depressed state for about six months. How did you feel when when you realised that that kind of identity was no longer there? I kept busy. I went went and my dad lives in Ireland, so I went out to Ireland and fished a lot. I love fishing, so I just went and fished. Smoked a bit, smoked a bit of weed, and just sat there on the lakes and just kind of just just defragged, just, you know, thought about it all and and then come back home and started writing again, you know, after probably a year or so. Yeah, I know I know a couple of the lads out of Cecil um kind of got really down down about it and festered and yeah. And it got really negative and started taking too many drugs and stuff before the uh they seen the light and got out of the shit again. But yeah, it's just, you know, everywhere everyone's got their everyone's got their way of dealing with things, haven't they? With depression or with a big loss, a bereavement or whatever. And it felt, yeah, they feel like a bereavement. Yeah. Just, with me, I've just I've just got to go and sit by a lake in the sunshine or in the rain with an umbrella over me and just look out and take a deep breath, try and catch a fish. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. Just that's the way I deal with things anyway. Yeah. And do you still enjoy sort of trying to write that perfect pop song? Um, to be honest, I, 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 haven't, I haven't played guitar for probably about a month, which I'm disgusted with. But yeah, yeah, I do try and write. But the thing is, if you try and write the perfect rock, uh, pop song, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. They've already been written. Yes. <laughs> but that gone. kind of catchy moment that you just you're sitting there by the lake and you think, shit, that's a great line. I've got it. Yeah. I just wondered if you're still hoping for that moment. Oh yeah, I still try and write the perfect lyric or but usually the perfect lyric is something so so simple. Something, you know, it's just it's it's five words that everyone else has thought and everyone else has probably written down. You go, you know, that's it, that's it. But yeah, it's going out there to try and write the perfect tune or the perfect pop tune, perfect whatever. It's just, you know, you you're gonna fail. You're gonna fail yes. because I'll go back to Karen Carpenter, end of, isn't it really? Or or, or, Brian, or Brian Wilson, end of. Well, it's, just, it's, it's not worth it. Well, not worth it. Go, go sort of, um, yeah, Burt Backrack's the other one as well. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So with your, because you with this, the new band that you've got, you yeah, use... We're, play, called play, ta we're called Tackle Tubo Men, I don't know if you know that. I did sort of, yeah. I mean, did you start, you used Pledge Music, didn't you, to, to sort of try and release your first record? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we we raised funds through that, which which got us into the studio for. <clears throat> I think we recorded it in three days. I think we done about fifteen songs in in um, three days, and uh, the majority of them were first takes. To be honest, yes, because we again, it's just like me and Paddy, who, who was in Cecil, he's in Takatsubo men as well. We've been writing songs for so long, and he, he's, he'd moved to Wales. So I, I went out there for a, off, off and on and wrote some tunes with them. And um, we, we knew them so well, you know, we just went in there and we sent them over anyway to Stu so we knew them. They were, they were like, they were ready, you know what I mean? It's just, there's no reason to go in there and play a song five or six times. It's like you have a three-piece, one guitar, one bass, a drum kit. There's no reason to kind of, unless you really fuck it up, <laughs> to over over analyze it you know what i mean it's like bang if, if you didn't do that fill there whatever is it still tight yeah it's cool right move on to the next one and that's how we treated it and you know it's like 12 the, the album ended up being 12 songs in 
uh, 30 minutes. Yes. I, I, bizarrely, there was, a, there was a band in the 80s called um, Go West. That was it. They, they had a few yeah. of those really popular. And, he <laughs> said, and the guy said to me, he said, um, for God's sake, just do it, release it and move to the next thing. Don't just faff about yeah. it. Just get it out there. Yeah. He said exactly. that was the, the biggest mistake they ever made was just like faffing it about. It's like, if the idea is good, it's good. If it's a bit shit and you keep working on it, it's not going to get better, but just get it out. Just, you know, let go of it and just move to the next thing. So it was quite, it's yeah. kind of interesting. You've got more of an attitude for sort of just getting on with it. Exactly. It's like some songs you, you want to, you want to grip onto because they've got, you've got like, they've got some like elements of it that are amazing, but, you know, you come back to it and then a year later you come back to it and it's still not working. Fuck it off. Fuck it off. Songs are best when they just, they click. Yes. Especially when there's three people in a band. You know what I mean? If it clicks, it's dead easy. Go in, record it, it's done. Get it out. Even if no one hears it, who gives a fuck? I'm not asked about, you know, sponsoring and, you know, we, we, just put, a, we put a single out the other month and, it's probably had like a thousand listens or whatever. I don't care. It just it needed to be out. It needed to get it out and move on to the next thing. Otherwise, you'll 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 never move on. You'll yes. just it'll just kind of float in, float around in, in your skull until you know you go mad. Yeah, quite. Just almost lastly, I mean, what's your fondest memories of being in the band? You know, I just wondered if there was a kind of particular high moment that you thought, God, that was when it was absolutely the stars had lined up and it was absolutely magic. Um, do you know what? Again, cheesy friendship. You know, just being, just being with the lads, and not just the band. I mean, like, there's, there's, there was a few lads who, who were there throughout as the crew or whatever. Just, just being with them and just going, fucking hell, is this happening? Are we like, are we signed to like a label here? Are we like, have we got money to go and stay in hotels every night? Have we got money to go, you know, mix, mix some of our tunes. In, in America and that, that there's no what kind of one one um one moment that kind of could could sum everything up to be honest. Um probably meeting a few people, you know, meeting meeting Led Zeppelin and it was quite a highlight, you know, just having a chat with Jimmy Page and yeah, you know, I could I could probably it probably change, you know what I mean, if that's as yes. I'm thinking along. But the, but the most important thing was just being with the lads in the most surreal situation with, you know, in a in an EMI conference and we're just some scowls from Anfield, you know, going outside and speaking to some homeless dude in Dublin and then saying, do you want to stay in my hotel room tonight? You know, come and keep warm, bringing him into our hotel room and saying, who's your favourite band, mate? And he goes, Queen. They go, come down, throw an access all areas, pass over his neck and go and, yeah, there's Brian May there going to have a chat with him. Just stuff like that. <laughs> Just stuff like that. No, that, that to me is, you know, having the opportunity to do that. God, that's magic, isn't it? Yeah. That is really magic. That made, no one's going to believe that guy's story either, are they? <laughs> Excellent. Especially when, I left, especially when I left him for a day, then came back to my hotel room and walked back and he's in the bath with a bottle of champagne as well, you know, his feet off. <laughs> some homeless dude. Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no one's going to believe him. So, look, just lastly, what if you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self? What would you have kind of wanted to have said after you know 
with all the experience you've had and the ups and downs and sometimes sideways moments, you know, if you could have thought there was a couple of things I would have just wished I'd knew then that I know now. Um, fuck music off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, um, just, just be real. Be real. No bullshit. Even if you're upset, people, be real. And that's it. Yes. As simple as that, and maybe stay in school a bit longer. Yeah. And uh, stay in art college a bit longer. Um, I don't know. Become a plumber. <laughs> gas fitter. Gas fitter. More money in it. I guess so. That's true, actually. <laughs> but you must be pleased with the legacy that you've had with the band and, and what you've kind of left there. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's, it's you know, even now when it, I'll get people like friend requesting me on Facebook or whatever, and like, Who's this? I'll send them a message, message, and they'll go like, "I was just a big fan of Cecil back in the day," and I'll go, "Sound you, my mate." Then, you know, just little things like that, and then they've stayed. Loads of them have stayed, my friend, because I've never been one to make to feel like I'm some kind of, you know, rock god or something. I'm not. I'm just some lad, you know. So if you if you want if you want a gab, if you want a chat, if you want a beer, then you know, I'll, I'll happily do that. So yeah. Yeah. I think the sound's cracking up. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. Indeed. Thank you ever so much. That was me in conversation with um, St. Williams from the band, all the way from Liverpool, Cecil. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. You can find them on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes. No reason not to really find out more about indie pop from that golden decade and sometimes after. Anyway, have a great week.